0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to All Shall Be Well. I'm Anne Boyd, host of All Shall Be Well, a podcast by InterVarsity's Women in the Academy and Professions. We're here to support women in their God-given callings into the university and beyond. So if you're a graduate student or a faculty member, an administrator or a student in professional school, a scholar in between jobs, or simply a person who supports women in the academic world, then this podcast is for you. Today on the podcast, we'll be listening in on a panel discussion that we recorded back in July with four Christian women professors who have contributed to the book Power Women, Stories of Motherhood, Faith, and the Academy. In this discussion, the panelists get into all the topics you would hope for in an event like this, such as misconceptions about motherhood in the academy and the church, and navigating gender roles in parenting, and the work of resisting imposter syndrome, so many of the struggles that, for women, seem to accompany a dual call into the university and parenthood. But the thing that I liked especially was the sense of community they brought to the conversation. These women have not only collaborated on a project together of writing and editing this book, they have also supported one another along the way. And this has reinforced their hope that the book itself will birth new communities of academic women who can talk honestly with one another and forge new networks of support. It's an idea that is both beautiful and really grounded in the requirements of daily life. I just love it and I think you would enjoy reading this book and discussing it with others too. In fact, we would love to invite you into a book club featuring power women that we are hosting at the Well later this fall. It's on November 1st, 8th and 15th of 2021, and you can find the details to sign up for that in our show notes. We hope you can join us. So, let me introduce you to the women you'll be hearing in this panel. First up, Joy Qualls is an Associate Professor of Communication Studies and Associate Dean of the Division of Communication at Biola University. She is married to Kevin, a licensed professional counselor, and they are parents to two children. Next, you'll hear from Jean Neely, Ph.D. Jean teaches in the writing program at Azusa Pacific University. She and her family love hanging out at their friendly neighborhood coffeehouse to read write and wonder. Joy and Jean were contributors to this book. The next two women served as editors. Nancy Wong Yoon, PhD, is an associate professor of sociology at Biola University. She is raising a family that makes good trouble. And Deshauna Collier-Gubel, PhD, is an associate professor and the founding chair of the Department of Criminal Justice at Azusa Pacific University. She solo parents, beautiful, vivacious, energetic, four-year-old twins. This discussion was hosted on July 14, 2021, by Karen Heiss-Guzman, the director of Women in the Academy and Professions, and the event was part of the Celtic Way Digital Pilgrimage for faculty from the summer of 2021. So... Let's dive right in. We're so glad you're here with us. Well, I'd like to invite
1: each of these women to take a moment to share briefly about their academic journey and what were some of the key factors that drew them to a PhD and to the academic uh, endeavor. So
2: I'm gonna start with Dr. Qualls. Would you answer that question for us? Sure, good evening, it's so nice to be with all of you. I am Joy Qualls, and my academic journey was long and winding, although as an undergrad, I had several mentors who, uh, if you will, perhaps prophesied over the future of my life, but that was not my intention or goal. I wanted to be in government and politics. And I did spend two years on Capitol Hill and and in campaign work. So I got to do that before I stood in front of the United States Capitol one morning, praying and thanking the Lord for that gift and opportunity when he asked me to walk away from all of it and do what it was that he had called me to do. Uh, I'm probably the only person who's left the United States Senate uh, to go be a church secretary, but that's what I did while I figured this out. And it was on that path that another mentor came alongside me, handed me an application for a PhD program and said, put this out before the Lord. And if the do sits on it, he has answered what it is that you are supposed to do. And and I've never looked back from from that place. This is the space that's given me the opportunity to explore and question and ask all of the whys uh, that that are out there. And then on, on top of that, I will say that It is in that obedience that I get to study religion and politics and government and all of the things that perhaps would have looked like I walked away from are all part of what I do uh, and the work in which I serve today. So when you do that, when you walk in obedience, the Lord gives you back everything that, that you have sacrificed many, many times over.
1: Great. Thank you. Jean Neely, would you go next, please, and introduce sure.
3: yourself? Yes. Hi, everyone. I'm Jean. Um, so I studied comparative literature and minored in French at UC Irvine as an undergrad and probably would never have, well, certainly would never have considered doing a PhD if my senior thesis advisor hadn't urged me to consider it. Mm. And I still didn't really take her seriously until a couple of years after that. But yeah, uh, after undergrad, I served in ministry and was considering going into ministry full time. I worked with the University Link Ministry in Paris, France, for a while, and also did a comparative literature, uh, the equivalent of a master's um, at the Sorbonne while I was there, and then got my doctorate in English literature at USC afterwards. And I think what really drew me to uh, doing graduate work was finally just a love for language and literature and really wanting to work with uh, students at the college level after having some experience teaching at the high school level as well. Great. Great. Thanks. Okay.
1: How about Dr. Yun, would you answer that for us? Hi. So, um, and also just to
4: clarify, I said that I want to say that my children make good trouble. And for those of you who know what good trouble means, um, you'll probably understand why I'm a sociologist. So I am, uh, let's see, I guess I, I think I loved college so much that I wanted to be in college forever. (laughs) Therefore, that's why I became a professor. I mean, I didn't know what that meant. I um, am the first in my uh, family to get a PhD. Um, And so I, I, you know, and also I majored in English creative writing poetry. So closer to what Jean did. But then I ended up in sociology after taking just the intro class, because again, I didn't know what a PhD entailed. (laughs) So I thought, gee, why not? I will go into a PhD program having just taken the intro class. That's so it was, it was a, but they let me in. So I guess, you know, God, God makes opens doors, right? And I and I decided to get a PhD in sociology because it was actually I had I, I took the class as a junior. And so I was already, you know, pretty further, far along. And I loved English. I loved writing poetry. But the sociology class was kind of like, you know, it's like when you first accept Christ, right? It's like your eyes are open. And that's what sociology was for me. It opened up, up my eyes to the world. I realized things that I had experienced, my entire identity could be partially understood through this discipline. And I, you know, I, I just, I, I love it still to this day. So yeah, that's my journey.
1: Super, thanks. Okay, and last but not least, Dr. Kalia Gubil, uh, would you answer that for us?
5: Yes, yeah, my road to the PhD was a little long. I perhaps maybe a little different. I think that I was uh, spent a little time trying to find myself there. But what I'll say is that I grew up in South LA in a community where we didn't have the best experience of of law enforcement, unfortunately, something that we're still discussing in the public today. And later on in my life, I ended up becoming a police dispatcher. And so in that experience, I felt like God gave me this unique opportunity to be a bridge builder because I understand uh, many different sides of the conversation that still plagues us today. The best way I felt like I could be a bridge builder was to teach people that wanted to become cops. So I went to school, finished my PhD, and started teaching criminology and criminal justice. Wow such a variety,
1: right, of places from which you've come and how you've gotten to where you are now. So thank you. Uh, Thank you for sharing all of that information with us. Well, let's think a little bit about um, university. Historically, it has not been a friendly place for women in general. Being a parent adds an additional layer of challenge for most women. Nearly 10 years ago, a research team at UC Berkeley released a book called Do Babies Matter? Gender and Family in the Ivory Tower, where they coined the phrase, the baby penalty. While most universities think of themselves and publicize themselves as modern and liberal, progressive, welcoming to women, their policies, procedures, and structures have often lagged behind their rhetoric. So what have been some of the challenges that you've encountered along the way whether from the institution at large or a particular department uh, as an academic mother. Deshauner, I would like to throw that one to you first, if you'd be willing to answer that.
5: Sure. So I think, yeah, there's definitely a, um, (laughs) a baby penalty or a dad premium is the way that we discussed it in our book, Empower Women. So starting just, you know, my first academic job right out of grad school um, dealt with pay equity issues. So even before becoming a mom, just, just pay equity issues. And I think that that's something that I've observed just up and down the administrative rank in higher education. So at all ranks, are we paying women and moms the same way or the same rate of Uh, for equal work um, that we're paying men and dads. So I think that that's one that just really jumps out at me related to this question. In addition to that, specifically thinking of myself as a mom this past year has been tremendously stressful (laughs) for um, those of us that have younger children, especially. And so thinking about the ability to write and research while also teaching my full-time load and caring for my children who are at home because it's difficult to find care for them. Mm -hmm. Looking at the ranks of, like, there's, there's so many different folks that are moving in and out of positions right now. And how many moms feel so overwhelmed that they just don't even have the energy to even apply for any of these opportunities? Mm-hmm. There's a lag on research. So the lag on being able to research during the pandemic and get research done. And that has a lack effects on the career of moms um, down the road, looking at tenure and promotion. Whereas uh, what the research should suggest is that dads during the same time period have actually been super productive and they've had time to get lots of research work started and <laughs> finished and published. So I think sometimes looking at it from that era of, um, are we providing a dad's premium rewarding dads in a way um, that we're not rewarding moms. In our book, Power Women, Joy actually writes an amazing chapter that talks about the experience of a mom as the breadwinner, which is something I experience as well. So, so I have participated in um, hiring processes where I've heard people thinking about, well, we have to think about this, this, person and he has to care for his family. And so when we're making this offer, we want to make sure that we are providing all of this additional stuff because we want to make sure his family is secure. And we're not taking that same approach when we're thinking about the mom and even considering that the mom could be the breadwinner. There's always this kind of thought that like, well, you work, but your husband also works. Well, I solo parent. So what what happens there? <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, so I'm going to, I'm going to stop there so that others can also chime in. Super helpful. Thanks. Joy, she mentioned you. So
1: I'm going to ask you, uh, do you have anything to add to um, what Deshaun has already said?
2: Sure. I, I would add that for me, and I know for several of my colleagues, most of my work has been in the Christian Academy, which adds another layer mm-hmm. on all of this. Mm-hmm. So in addition to what is experienced in in the world, if you will, if I can use that Christianese for a moment, add the Christian layer to it. And there's a lot of baggage in terms of the language and the way in which we describe the work that women do. So I think that that's another issue. You mentioned at the beginning that I have two children. What is uh, missing there is that I actually finished my dissertation work between my two children. They're 13 months apart. Dissertation was defended in between there. So I had three kids in two years. (laughs) uh, Because you know that dissertation is a birthing process uh, as much as as my children were. But I was an adjunct at that point. I had no maternity leave. I had no benefits, I had nothing that was security for me, and child care for newborns was non-existent in the community that we lived in. And mm-hmm. so I brought my baby to work, and I wore her on me in class. And at one point, a secretary, and I'll use that term because that was what how she defined herself um, uh, in her work, said to me, you better not let the dean see you with that baby in class. And I said, well, if the Dean would like to come and provide childcare for me, then he is more than welcome to do so. But otherwise she's coming to class with me because I'm barely making minimum wage and I've got to figure out how to care Mm -hmm. for this child. And, and so I, I, I think there's those issues and challenges of just, you know, we, we are often the primary caregivers for our children. Now I will say, I talk in in my chapter that flipped for us because when my career took off, my husband intentionally made the choice to become a stay at home parent. And part of that was he was in a career place that he needed a break. He was burning out. And so it was a good time, but it also was an intentional effort to support the work that I was doing. But I've I've experienced those things that that Deshauna was talking about. I I actually had a colleague at my current university in a meeting about pay equity say to me, men need to be paid more because they have to provide for their families. And I said, what you don't know is, is that I'm the one who provides for my family. And not because I was on some power trip, right? But because Mm -hmm. this is the way the Lord had orchestrated and organized our lives and so the idea that somehow my work was less valuable because of the provision for my family was was difficult. And when it's shrouded in Christian language, it it adds a lot of other baggage that we have to work through. That perhaps our colleagues in the secular academy, if you will, mm-hmm. don't don't have. In addition to that,
1: yes, thanks, Nancy. Do you want to add? Anything yeah, so
4: I had um, my first child in graduate school, and I was pregnant, and I actually hid my pregnancy. I don't know if anyone else did that, <laughs> but I was at UCLA. Everyone had high hopes for me, and I chose to come to Viola, and I did not want people to think that I came to Viola because I was pregnant, even though that was
1: part of the reason. <laughs>
4: But I don't know, I just didn't want them to make assumptions about me and my ability Mm -hmm. based Mm -hmm. on the fact that they could see my belly (laughs) rising. And, you know, because nobody at my university had children, women had children until they were tenured. There was no role model. It was, it was like because you know this uh, as a sociologist we know the statistics the statistics are men with tenure get promoted and tenured, and tenured right and women with children were the least likely to get tenure so it is it's like three times more i think is the is the statistic and we have it in our book as well and so there are assumptions and there are realities and the system does not is not favorable to support, especially when the tenure clock and the biological clock completely coincide, right? That was one of the reasons why I chose to come to Biola was because they did not have a tenure clock and I did not want to have to make that horrible decision. Do I have a second child or do I, you know, devote myself to my career and get tenure? And so those were, and there, were, there was no maternity leave or no no parental leave at all when I was there. So I had to figure out, do I want insurance? <laughs> I mean, all those things. And, you know, it's it wasn't, it was what? It was that was just, you know, about a decade ago. And so it was actually um, Professor Mother's group that Biola had that two of the people actually crafted our parental leave policy so that we would have something at the university. So that was, you know, within the last decade uh, or so. So, yeah, there was a lot of challenges, a lot of challenges. And, you know, whether to bring your baby to to class or to maybe risk looking unprofessional or, you know, all all of those. It's like it's it's endless. But in Maria Su Wang's chapter, uh, it's the first chapter opening of the book. She talks. She actually cites a study that shows that mothers are actually more productive after the early years because mothers learn how to multitask. Right. They are actually able to publish because you know they're maximizing every minute of every day and so it's very encouraging right that it's not forever that if institutions can account for those first 5 years of you know each child that's somehow, yeah, the system has to change. And certainly, in Deshaun we we t- we wrote about the pandemic and its effect and how it's it's going to hugely disadvantage women um, because unfortunately the childcare um, duties all fall disproportionately on us. Um and so on the flip side, you know, a lot of us ha- had have you know supportive partners and it can be done. You know, Deshaun and I both have sociology backgrounds. We are keen on pointing out all the barriers, all the problems, but at the same time, because of the faith aspect, a lot of, you know, a lot. Of the chapters are very uplifting and so we definitely capture the gambit of we want to lay it all out you know just keeping it real so
1: yeah great thanks well you've already touched on the, the pandemic a little bit already so I just want to follow up on that you know research tells us that the pandemic has hit working women much harder than it has working men For academic women, among other things, they're publishing significantly less than their male counterparts. So I'm just curious, how has the pandemic been for you all and what's been helpful to you as an academic mother and what hasn't? Nancy, I'm going to toss that to you first. I think...
4: There were so many things that besides the kind of taking care of needs, there was also the emotional aspect of it, both for ourselves, you know, being kind of cooped up with your family, you have young children being cooped up with your young children 24 seven with no relief. And then for me, my, my children are a little er, uh, older, but also like they have no friends, they have no, you know, not, not being able to enter and, and having to kind of play therapist and play and that having no, and not, I, unfortunately I didn't, I wasn't in therapy at the time I probably should have been (laughs) just uh anyway just yeah it was a lot and through it actually um I like to think of myself as a power woman actually I was actually productive partly because my kids were older there was also this um anti-Asian hate that happened during this time. And I was terrified for myself and my children. And, but at the same time, I was asked to do a lot of public speaking. So I actually probably did more public speaking during the pandemic than not, because Mm -hmm. partly because people were inviting people because you don't have to pay for airfare and stuff, you know? So it was, um, it was a mixed bag for me personally, but I think in terms of, um, gosh, I I have no advice because I barely survived, you know, I feel like, how did we, um, how did we get through it, y'all? I don't know. I know that, like, my sister had a baby during this time, you know, I mean, it was, um, it's like life continued on, it wasn't perfect, but, uh, and also, we didn't really have church, right, because it was like, no one was meeting, it was, it was definitely, it felt like I was, it was, Like we were in a different world, right? And I'm just thankful that we lived and survived because a lot of people didn't, right? And so that was, um, sorry, y'all. No, no, no wisdom
1: there. Just, it sucked. (laughs) (laughs) I think you can get a yay and amen, right? Well, in faculty ministry, we use the phrase double loneliness to describe the experience of Christian faculty who don't feel at home in their institutions because of their faith commitment. And then often they feel out of place in their churches, uh, which don't quite get them or understand the academic life and its commitments. I think for women, there are additional layers to that. Uh, So it almost becomes a poly loneliness, if you will. So I'm curious, what has your experience been at church? Have you been supported in your various commitments. Joy, I'm going to ask you if you would speak to that one first.
2: So this is the space where I have been doubly blessed in this space. And I don't say that lightly. I uh, We intentionally chose a church. So part of my research agenda is on women's leadership in the church and the political and social implications of that. And I got to a place where I told my husband, I am not attending churches any longer that do not have women on staff and women on the board. I have to fight these battles every day in my professional life. I'm not doing it in my church. And the Lord led us to a space where I am now part of the teaching team at our church. My husband's on the board. Uh, we have a woman on staff. We have other women on our, our board um, with us. And so I have a space where I am safe. And those are the guys that I turn to. I was recently asked, "Who are who are your closest friends? Uh, Living in Southern California because we're not from there. And I said, you know who my closest friends are? They're my pastor friends who we meet every week to do sermon planning and go over the lectionary and things of that nature. Those guys, and they're mostly men, they're my best friends because they're the people I can be real with and honest with. And it's so refreshing because I think Nancy and I share an institution and it is. Not that way amongst the theology class all the time. There are some who are our allies and friends, but there are Mm -hmm. others who don't believe we have a place in ministry, Mm -hmm. uh, especially in leadership in the church. And yet at the same time, you know, I will say God placed us in this space. And he has given us opportunity to thrive in that space. And I don't get it (laughs) because I was told many years ago that I would not be successful at a place like Biola because of those things. Mm -hmm. And yet it is the very place that God planted me and and can see the the fruits of that, but it is exhausting. Mm -hmm. And so to have a church that I can go to that is, safe and welcoming and holds my arms up when they get tired is the greatest gift that, that the Lord could have given me. And I know that that's very rare. So I don't, you know, I'm like, run, go find yourself a church like this is what I would tell you, but I know that that's hard to do. But, but I also, I would also say the opposite. Don't just go to the, only the safe places, right? Being in a space that is uh, challenging doctrinally, theologically, to, to who I am as a, as a woman leader and a woman called of God has created opportunities to share that truth in spaces where perhaps when it was more friendly, nobody wanted to talk about those things, right? Nobody Mm -hmm. wanted to have that conversation. And I get to have that conversation all the time, Mm -hmm. but having that place of rest is also really, really important. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Great. Thanks. And, and uh, yeah, I love the fact that you were intentional about where you were going to place yourself, right? And what was sort of a non-negotiable for you?
3: I want to know if Jean has something to add. I'd say, yeah. And some of my experience of that is more perhaps um, as contingent adjunct faculty, you know, and and not having a whole lot of institutional support on campus. I actually don't really try to have a, a very strong leadership role at our church that's sort of complicated right now and it's uh, mostly because I felt some dissonance with other issues like race-related issues and things like that and was more engaged with those things before and have just had to take a step back from that so yeah just a different kind of experience there. Thanks Jean. Nancy do you
1: have anything you want to add? I don't want to be the downer. <laughs> So, maybe not. I don't
4: know. <laughs> I've had, I've had, okay, so this is my experience. After working at Biola, I, so I didn't go to any kind of like Christian schools. I only went to public schools and then working at Biola. Biola has in Southern California, and I don't know if, you know, wherever you all are, if you have a very prominent Bible school, it has a big reputation, like everybody knows about it. So when I started going to churches and then I told people that I was a professor at Biola, I think there was this, they felt threatened by me. And I had never experienced that before. Had, they, they felt like I was going to like start taking over the sermon or taking over the Bible study. But I'm in sociology. I'm not even in the theology school. I'm just like everybody else. I'm just here to, you know, make friends and learn and have fellowship. But I definitely felt this kind And I also had a lot of people doubt that I was a professor. So there was... I think this is the... The, the church culture is one that, you know, that women have a certain place, right? And if they don't fit into that stereotype... It's they don't know what to do with you. So I've had a, I've had a really hard time in in churches actually, and I stopped telling people I was at Biola. I, try, I tried that experiment, but you know that can only last so long. Yeah. So I've I've not had um, you know the, the kind of intersection the polyloning, that that like pretty much sums up my my entire life is uh, just trying to find community. But I'm thankful to find other Christian women professors. Mm-hmm. Right. They are like my community. They get it. They ha- they have that you know they understand they understand exactly what I'm going through and a lot of them also have hard times especially women of color you know we have a really hard time finding space both in institutions both in tr- and in churches and even like at, at schools like I was just talking to some friends today that because I have flexible schedule I'm hanging out with the stay-at-home moms a lot of times but and they don't know what to do with me because <laughs> they're like it's not fair that you get flexible schedule and you have full-time paying job <laughs> and you seem to know it all <laughs> like I find myself making myself very small in spaces and then I'm like yes. well that's not good you know god gave me these yeah. gifts god gave me a voice so i'm actually trying to learn unlearn mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. this kind of pressure to make yourself small right yeah. because when i'm actually out in the public world really powerful women are like, why are you like this? Why are you so down on yourself? Why are you, you know, why aren't you, why aren't you more confident? Look at all that you've done. And I know that that's actually because of these kind of like patriarchal and sometimes intersecting with faith places that I have to be mindful that I shouldn't, that's not what God wants. That's not God's intention. Even though these are oftentimes Christian spaces that I have to, you know, navigate myself. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Great. Thank you. Well, that actually segues nicely into the next question. So we've talked some about the struggles that you've faced uh, as mothers externally in academic settings or in the church. But Nancy, you're already touching on some of this. What about internal struggles? Understandably, often these are related to what's going on externally. So, Jean, I'm going to ask if we could start with you. Your chapter in Power Women is entitled Imposter Blues and mm-hmm. Finding Rest in God. So, yeah. could you speak a bit to that question?
3: Sure. Thanks, Karen. I know imposter syndrome is something that a lot of academics deal with, and um, especially maybe women um, in the academy. And I just happen to have a really severe case of it. (laughs) That's partly, I think, because I also live with a depressive condition. So uh, depression and anxiety are just pretty daily companions of mine. Despite the fact that, you know, I'm on medication, I'm, I'm under treatment and everything. There's still things I have to deal with in the day to day. So I have a very fierce inner critic. And I know that's also very common among academics. And uh, it's interesting just because on top of that, I also tend to have a sort of spiritual perfectionism. So, you know, on top of sort of comparing myself all the time to all my colleagues and and peers in the academy, I also tend to think, oh, I'm not Christ-like enough. I'm not doing enough for God. I'm not doing enough for the church. Um, So there's just a lot of um, inner pressure that I deal with in the day-to-day. And I just found that being a mother has just been really healing in a lot of unexpected ways. Specifically, that also includes sort of expanding my notion of God to think about God as mother. You know, after you experience, I mean, it's one thing to, to think about God abstractly sort of loving us as a parent. And then after you experience this just totally visceral oceanic love for your kids Mm -hmm. and your body, thinking of God as having that sort of posture towards Mm -hmm. me has been really helpful. Mm -hmm. When I think about like, my son would never have to justify his existence to me. You know, I just delight in his very being. You know, I love watching him rest. I love watching him play and have fun with his friends. He would never have to perform for me or anything, Mm -hmm. right? So just experiencing that has been helpful. And also just Thinking of my own mother and how she has always been so amazingly supportive and done all she can to support me through depression. My parents never judged me for not being productive enough or for struggling with depression or anxiety. And so just also thinking of that sort of love coming from God has been really helpful. And yeah, it's still an ongoing struggle. I mean, especially during the pandemic too, just mental health struggles all around. Yeah. But yeah, thinking of God as mother and just trying to think of myself and my worth as not defined by the academy has been helpful. It's hard.
1: Yes, it's hard. But that's lovely, Jean. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, Deshawn, is there anything you'd like to add just about some of the internal struggles that you've faced as an academic mother?
5: Yes, um, definitely. I want to start by being a Jean's cheerleader. Her chapter is absolutely Mm -hmm. amazing. And it's a part of, um, exactly what she said, you know, just, uh, about the imposter blues but just the realness that you got from gene just a moment ago is exactly what you get in the chapter and it's something that i think um, moms we deal with a lot right like we're always thinking of like am i being a good enough mother right gene's chapter falls in a section about navigating motherhood where christina lee kim actually her chapter is titled The Good Mother and talking about those those thoughts about what is a good mother and what's not. And then the other chapter, the third chapter that rounds out that section is by G. Uh, Sun who talks about recategorizing our thoughts our our title even right so instead of thinking thinking about yourself as a female dad and if you thought about yourself that way you actually give yourself a lot more credit for things instead of a lot of the internal criticisms that we provide ourselves yeah so i think in the book, Power Women, we, we have three solid chapters that kind of deal with thinking through these kind of in, internal criticisms that moms have. I definitely fall into that same category with everyone else. I, I think about like, I'm always questioning, am I doing this well? Am I doing this right? Mm-hmm. And I do have a therapist. And so my therapist, and, I, and I'll think like, I can't do this. Like I'm solo parenting two four-year-olds and I'm like, oh my gosh, there are days that I wake up and I'm just like, Lord, I can't even, I can't, I can't do it. I'm just just, just fresh out. I'm fresh out. And what my therapist always says to me is, but here you are doing it. (laughs) (laughs) So I think we definitely have some room to, to think about and really look at all of the wins that we're having. So during the pandemic, one of This is a tip or, or I don't know if it's a tip or a trick, but it's something that I started doing during the pandemic. I started thinking about at the end of my day, every day, what are some wins that I had today? Mm -hmm. Um, And that helps me to retrain my mind to think about all of the ways that I'm winning rather than all of the ways that I, you know, the, the few ways that I, that I messed up that day.
1: Yeah, that's great. Thanks. Thank you for the tip. So how do you manage the juggle? How do you decide between all of the competing priorities? How do you create boundaries to keep the main thing, the main thing? We already got one little tip on uh, some of that from Deshauna, but any tips or tricks you've learned along the way that you might want to share with us? I'm going to ask Nancy if you would speak to that first. We
4: have a whole section on this actually, because I wanted to survey, make sure surveying all the contributors to see. And one of the ones that stuck out is there are seasons, right? That yeah. um, now that my kids are in middle and high starting high school, I, you know, it was really like, like the whole stereotype, oh, enjoy them while, well. you know, you can't because there's, there's go so fast. I have to say that I, this is again, keeping it real. I had a really hard time with those first few years not having sleep and yes, they're adorable, they're cute, whatever. <laughs> but I'm actually happy to be out of that. But it does, uh, but, but I think what hit me was now I have had the majority of their time with me. Now like the rest of it is that there's only a few more years when they're out of the house. That really, oh my gosh, that that hurts, right? Because it's like, yeah. okay, yeah. yeah, great. I finally got got over the, the really hard years. But now it's like now that they're easier I I only have a few years left with them. And so, so there are seasons, right? Mm -hmm. Seasons. Yeah. And and also I'm much more productive now than I just, just like Maria's chapter. I am so much more productive now than I was when they were little, but I, you know, I, and the wins we, I was able Mm -hmm. to accomplish what I could accomplish during that time. Right. So, yeah. So I think that, you know, just how do you manage, how do you juggle? It's a marathon, not a sprint, right? It's a long haul. We got to, you know, think of it in terms of that. It's, there's energy we have to continue to build up energy and then also we we learn skills along the way you know and also having community i we like to think that this book is create is going to be a form of community and hopefully If people want to have, you know, get their institutions to invest in, you know, maybe reading groups, right, where and then maybe those institutions will also then invest more money in helping moms because we, you know, we had to create these groups on our own because we didn't have that at our institution. So hopefully this book will allow um, institutions of faith, especially, but all institutions to be able to. Cree community, And, you know, we do want to, we have all sorts of brainstorms. We want to have conferences. We want to have Facebook groups where professor uh, mothers of faith can, you know, support one another because that's actually the most helpful, right? To have that community because we started that group at our institution. We got our institution to chip in for just lunches so that, because, you know, we have no time, we had no extra time at all, but we needed to eat. So, you know, being able to have that lunch that was provided by the university and then being able to just just have that water cooler time. Cause a lot of it wasn't just like, talking about child care, although that was huge for those of us who had young children at the time. But also, like, how do you juggle your your schedule? How do you juggle your teaching schedule so that you can, you know, maybe pick up the kids? And how do you talk to your chair and your dean about in a professional way so that you're not, like, asking, seeming like you're asking for special favors as a mom? But, and this book is also for, for you know, for administrators, you know, for, uh, I know Deshauna very much was, you know, her heart is that this book will be purchased by administrators so that they know, because we have chapters on you know, what parental leave is. It's not a vacation, you know, because we have institutions where people think that, oh, well, either it's just a vacation. We shouldn't even count that time and all sorts of, you know, stereotypes that need to be dispelled,
1: right, for institutions to really support their professor mothers. Great. Thanks. Dishani, you want to add anything about trying to do that juggle? What's been helpful? Any other tips or tricks?
5: So organizing yourself, however that works for you. Um, I have a few different calendars. I use electronic calendar, but I also have a paper calendar. That's a great organizational tool for me to keep me, to help me to keep like what, and they have these super cool ones today. So I got one where I can write, like, what were my wins for the week and stuff like that. And it's so finding one that works for you, I think that helps a lot. In the book, Nancy and I co-authored a chapter where we talk about social support. So for me, what has really helped me the most is the village that helps me to raise my children. So I'm a huge Laker fan. Go Lakers. So I'm a huge Laker fan. And I, I love to tell my mom that she's more clutch than Kobe. Um, And it's, um, it's just true. (laughs) My mom is more clutch than Kobe. She comes through for me every time I need her. So I think a part of it is also like locating your village. For some of us, our mom might not be our village, but it might be our neighbor, our friend, pastor, or some, a church friend, colleague. So just thinking about like, who can the village be? Nancy said, we actually have some questions. So if folks want to purchase the you and use it, like as a reading group at their university. Um, And that's one of the questions that we put with that group is Mm -hmm. helping people to walk through how to locate their village.
1: Super, thanks. So what advice would you have for men who want to be good brothers to their female colleagues? Curious, does anyone want to respond to that question? Or should I just call on somebody? Joy, you look like you got something to say.
2: Uh, I I, I don't know if I have the best. Here's what I would say is don't be afraid. And again, this is the layers of Christian community that get hard. Find yourself good male friends. and, And in those friendships, then learn how men tick, right? Who is not your husband, who is not your, you know, your partner, because that's a different situation. Having men in my life who are my buddies, they've got my back. I told you all I, I write on women and leadership in the church. I was going to a conference where this book was going to be presented in a critical panel. And it was both a great honor and the nightmare of my life that my work was going to be picked apart. And five pastors, these guys who are my buddies came along and said they were coming to to learn about the conference, right? This was an academic conference. They're not academics. We just want to learn about this. And an older, wiser woman came up to me and she said, do you know you have a spiritual guard who is walking Mm -hmm. with you everywhere? She said, those guys have not, their eyes have not come off of you. And they have followed you around. And as the enemy has sought to attack, they have come around you. But that took years of cultivation, uh, right? Mm -hmm. Of... This is what I do, and this is who I am, and this is what I need from you. And being able to say to a man who is not my husband, I need you to partner with me. I need you to be my friend. I need you to treat me like one of the guys. I need you, right? And I think this is the way we deal with some of these challenges that we have in the church about thinking objectively about one another that men and women can't be in the same room together because they might be a threat to one another. No, we have to model healthy relationships. So that's, that's the thing I would say is develop healthy relationships first and, and, and find the, the people who can be safe with you first. Then you are able to ask them questions. What do you need? How do you function? How do you work? And it's helped me be able to say to men that I work with, listen, you talk to me that way. And this isn't going anywhere. You know, you act as if we can't be in a room together, buddy. I don't, I don't care about you, right? Like, I've, I've got enough going on in my life. I don't, I don't need the hassle of those things, right? I mean, it just you're able to sort of speak their language, and, and I'm a rhetorician, so I'm looking at that language level of things all the time. But it's educating them, which is again exhausting and hard, and we don't want to do it. But at the same time, if I want. Uh, what I need, they have to know what it is that I need. And just like we learn in, in our marriage relationships, if I expect my husband to read my mind, it is going to go south every time. If I expect the men in my work life and in my friendships to to know what it is that I need or what I need them to know, but I expect them to read my mind. It's going to go south really, really fast. So, so I would say, in, again, intentionally cultivate those relationships. And it's not easy. It takes time. And you're going to get burned because some of them are not going to be the people that you need them to be. But when you find that, you know, I've got these guys, they've got my back. And, you know, who do I need to call? One of them will say, you know, that type of thing. And when you can cultivate that type of community, it's it's really beautiful. And I don't, I don't take that for granted. Yeah, yeah. that's great. Thanks. Thanks, Joy. Any, any of the rest of you want to speak to that about how,
1: any advice that you might have to men who want to be good brothers to their female colleagues?
4: I've seen, um, Joy and Deshauna. um, because Deshawn and I were in the same department and you know we're all we're all in the same university. Sorry Gina, I haven't seen you in action at APU but I'm sure you did. It but I've seen them really be just amazing in cultivating these kind of relationships. I myself I'm suspicious. <laughs> I'm really friendly but I'm also suspicious. So I have just a few. You don't need a lot. I just have a few. And what I do strategically is that if I am in a if I'm going to go into a meeting where I know there's going to be possible hostility to something I'm going to say, whether it be having to relate to motherhood or anything, then I I know that I look for an ally and I actually have a pre-meeting and that I will talk to them. Yeah. Right. And I will actually say, this is what I'm going to say. Could you support me? Right. So you have to be very strategic because what I found is that when I go into meetings, people are already going to be skeptical of because of my personhood. Right. And also, I actually when I before I became chair, I knew that I was going to a division where there are lots of people who don't know me and maybe have prejudices because we're sociology and, you know, sociology and Christian universities are suspects. So but in order to become a good chair to advocate for my department, I went and I interviewed the people that I knew would possibly see me as suspect. And I, as a new chair, I just said, can you tell me, can you give me any advice as a new chair based on your experience? So I interviewed, there were men and women. And, and so I introduced myself to them in that way. And then also they saw me as someone who was not a threat, but someone who was interested in what they had to say. So I'm very sure I can, you know, be strategic, even if you don't want to make friends with, you know, if you, if you don't want to make friends, but you can be strategic, I guess. I shouldn't say that I'm friendly, <laughs> but I also, I also, I also have a limited emotional capacity to, you know, yeah. to make friends. So, you know, I have to be strategic. So.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thanks. Okay. We've got time for one last question. Curious if you have advice for someone who has a spouse that's actually not supportive, how, how they might deal with that. In fact, what if the spouse isn't just unsupportive, they're actually jealous of your success and might even use the scriptures to suggest that you ought to be at home. Any advice for someone in that situation? <laughs> that's really hard. Yeah, so yes,
4: sorry.
5: I don't even know what to say. Dejana? Yeah, I was thinking, yeah, I mean there's lots of things beginning with taking a look inside. So looking at yourself and kind of pondering how we got here. Um, what is going on here? What do we need? Um, how can we care for ourselves well? Like, what is your self-care routine? Do you have a therapist? Do you have some, you know, things going on? Like, I, I just bought a Peloton, and um, I love it. So <laughs> I think that sometimes we, it, it's easy to kind of project, and so think about, like, so what should we do about this person, when the reality is, I mean, we can tell you many different things to do about the person, but then you might continue to choose this same situation in different areas of your life. And so it's definitely a time to look inward and to figure out what, what do you need? Like, what do you need to get to your happy place and to be joyful and how can you get yourself there? And oftentimes uh, we need help get doing that. Like, so mm-hmm. I, I'm not just, I don't want to make it seem like, Oh, it's just super easy. Go sit down for 20, 10 minutes and you're good. Sometimes that can take some time with a therapist mm-hmm. to really figure out. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And it even speaks in some ways to this idea of a village or a community that all of you have talked about. Right. And having people who are, in your corner, and that you you can be safe with, and that you can trust, and who understand, yeah, your situation. Well, we need to finish up, but thanks again to all of you for being with us tonight and for your helpful and your candid conversation. And thanks to for caring for all of those folks in your spheres (laughs) that you've been referring to tonight. Thank you for loving and serving your families and your communities. Thank you for caring for your students and your colleagues and your departments and your institutions. And thank you for the great work that you do and for being the aroma of Christ in the classroom and in the lab and in your wider discipline. I am just super grateful to know that you are where you are and are doing what you're doing.
0: Thank you for being part of our listening community. All Shall Be Well is hosted by me, Anne Boyd, and is a production of Interversities Women in the Academy and Professions. We acknowledge that the opinions of our guests may not necessarily represent the ministry, doctrine, or policies of InterVarsity. You can find more information about our podcast and the other cool things we are doing at thewell.intervarsity.org. Our work is funded solely through the donations of our listeners and supporters. So if you enjoyed this podcast, you might consider joining our support team by donating even 5 or $10 per month. You can find out how to do this at give dot slash the well or through our donation link at the well. Thanks so much for listening in today. We'll catch you next time.